Case, Case, do you read me? I'm, I'm in position, man. I, this is it. It's just, the door is just a few feet ahead. The, the rocket's about to take off. It's, it's the last one. This is our last chance. You gotta get out of there, man. You gotta get out of there. Ruby, can you, can you even copy? Is Ruby out there? It's me. I'm pinned down on the rocks outside the perimeter. Last I saw Ruby, there was just a hail of gunfire. I don't... It's all you now. It's all you, Cleo. This is it. I'll hold him off as long as I can. It's been a pleasure, runner. Greetings, programs. That's your old buddy Ingrid Bernal here. Hank from Fernu. Coming at you straight from Fishtown, Philly, PA. Live and direct on the podcast that's made to last. It is episode 59 of the RPG mainframe. And yes, that intro may have been short, but oh, it was so, so sweet with bitter, bitter emotion. I'll tell you what, you guys, I am at the tail end of a colossal experience in this glorious hobby of our and ours and for mainframe 59 i just want to sum it up i, I want to you know nostalgify just a little bit reminiscimate and uh, also break down some of the crazy lessons that i've picked up during this uh what four and a half almost five month campaign with the incomparable alex alvarez of course at the helm and then we have Kelsey Dion and my man Joe Sterling playing with me as a group of three desperate street runners who uncover a terrible secret and must basically fight to save the world. <laughs> Simple stuff, right? Happens every week in any good RPG. So let's break off a little intro music and get into this episode 59 about the Garden of Eden, our uh, altered state cyberpunk campaign that just wrapped up. Kick it. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. I know that it has been a little bit quiet here in February on the Patreon uh, page, but that is because two big releases right here in this month. We had 5e Hardcore Mode, um, which has had a humongous reception. Really excited about that. And then literally, I think it's tonight as of this moment of recording uh, that Altered State will be dropping out there into the world. Um, and so full respect to my man, Alex, uh, who's the, the principal writer on this project. Really, I was just the artist and the, the layout worker. Um, so it's complete collaboration between the two of us. And uh, he's shown some crazy chops on that front. I think in some ways a little more thorough, really, even than I would have done it. I think I, I tend to leave so many questions up to GMs and it's it's refreshing to see how Alex answers a few more of those questions than I ever would have. So it's it's always exciting to, to collaborate with someone that you trust and see where they're going to take it at places that you wouldn't have gone. But that this uh, the podcast isn't necessarily just about like creating altered state, which was really fun. And it's crazy to think, but it started in September all the way back in September, we decided to do this. We knew we were going to play it as we built it to test it and like sort of battle test, especially stuff like the gun mechanics, the milestone mechanics for the classes, which we're calling types um, and the new enemies we wanted to build out. And we wanted to play those as we created them, which isn't an opportunity you get that often, but just because the timing of our previous campaign and our access to Joe and Kelsey, um, we had this great 
symbiotic existence between creating the game Altered State, which I'm just terribly proud of now that we're able to look at it in the rearview mirror and play Altered State, which which I was just a, you know, a, a, a hapless decker um, in this game. And so I want to start my sort of recollection here before I get into like the lessons I learned as a game master. I just want to reminisce about a little bit about it and tell you guys a little bit about it because we haven't really been really revealing much of anything about it because we're kind of keeping it to ourselves, which is never easy when you're in like a really epic campaign. So our players were Case, that's my Decker, and this was something really exciting for me. I mentioned a little bit about it in the past, but I basically played a wide-eyed character, a character who says wow quite often, who hasn't seen a lot of action, who has been sort of holed up in a world of computers and sort of dark rooms, and this was his first kind of foray out into the world of really going for it as an adventurer. And it was so fun to play that role rather than the kind of hardened you know, battle-worn, super loyal badass that I normally play, this was much more of a like, did you see that? You know, that was the kind of thing that Case would say a lot of the time. But also, uh, I would like to think a really innovative and outside-the-box Decker who would always sort of think at problems in unexpected ways and kind of take things in strange directions. And that, that was a super fun character to play. So then we had Kelsey playing Ruby and Ruby was the quintessential gunmonger. So she's always carrying around between eight and a dozen guns and basically delivering brutal one-liners like, uh, you know, you know, eat this bitch, you know, this kind of stuff, these kind of brutal, like bullet one-liners before she ices our opponents and did have a penchant in the game, not just for unloading a lot of bullets during each game, but also making these sort of clutch kind of like uh, double play kills, you know, where you kind of from off screen are like icing someone at the last second in a, in a just stone cold kind of a way. And she just was leaning into that. And, and an interesting kind of Side note is at the end of the campaign, she was looking back and saying how she never truly got her head wrapped into how to play Ruby, but I never saw it that way. From my perspective as Case, I always saw her as the muscle of our group, and in my mind, the muscle of the group doesn't necessarily need all these huge heady statements and monologues and and funny quips. They're there to like deliver the punch and make everybody's eyes go wide with their capability to play mechanics. And I think Kelsey did a great job at that. And she was also fun to have a female gunmonger. And, and as as simple as that may be, to me, that's relatively uncommon in my games. So that was a refreshing switch on the trope of the gunmonger, which it's this sort of girl with these pink pigtails and these, you know, sort of hippie style sunglasses and like a punky Brewster kind of crazy outfit, but with a chain gun. And to me, that there was something really fun about that. I mean, very quintessential cyberpunk, right? Okay. And then finally, we have my man JD playing Cleopatra or sort of codename CP. And this was a true shifter. And so, especially in the beginning of the game, Joe was really leaning into the sort of who are you really angle. Like we never really knew if he was or it was male or female or exactly what he, she really looked like, what sort of his true form was. And later we started discovering that uh, he had no true form. He had what he called the blank. And this is where he would relax his shifting tech and actually just be this sort of blank, sort of dark character uh, represented by this sort of hooded figure in his token. 
And Joe's role was to always flip things with the deepest possible lies that you could <laughs> that you could imagine. So he would get us out of situations or get us into situations with these huge lies. Like he wouldn't just make a small lie that, you know, the car is out back when the car is actually in the front. No, he would just walk in and say he's the CEO and start chiding people for not working hard enough, like insanely bold role playing. And this is where his shifter character went. And I'm not quite sure even really how it happened because I don't know if it was necessarily in the cards, but Case and CP really became tight friends. And it, I mean, maybe it's because me and Joe are, are homies, you know, who go way back. We're, we're bromies at this point. Um, but that doesn't always mean that your characters are going to be really good friends. But for some reason, the characters just started understanding each other and, and got along in a way that for me was unexpected. And, and that added yet another layer to our gameplay. And I often had a lot of little descriptive details about how Case would deck. And they were they're descriptive details that basically made his decking equipment kind of sound like a Mac 2 from about like 1994-ish, 1995-ish. And so I had like Homer Simpson icons on my deck and I had this kind of this sort of low tech, like black and white display that I would use and sort of had to wait for progress bars and beach balls and stuff like that. And in time, this became part of CP's role play. And in a way he was sort of leaning into the way I was describing my tech and my shortcomings and making them strengths and sort of having this almost like, um, you know, quaint nostalgia about the decking tech that Case had that also was unexpected to me. And so this was the, the chemistry that we're going into the game with. We started the game by playing in text. We played our first, I think, three sessions in play-by-post. And we're just basically inventing all kinds of things. And I think Alex was just in the background sort of feverishly taking notes. We were just inventing what we wanted an innovative cyberpunk world to feel like. We didn't want to be in in meat and potatoes cyberpunk, which is still really cool. Um, we wanted to be in a sort of an after or a slightly higher tech and more degraded cyberpunk world. And we just started inventing it and we're fighting over this sort of bank of data. We found this um, shifter who kind of wasn't who she thought we uh, wasn't who we thought she was. And then we had a bunch of friends get into a scrape. We wound up involved in something far bigger and basically went through almost five months of gameplay as we uncovered layer after layer of this terrifying onion of this world sweeping scheme. And if you really want to know all the details on the scheme, the adventure is included in the altered state PDF that's coming out very, very soon. And so I'm going to have to, you know, hold off on telling you everything about Alex's story arc. But for me, this podcast isn't about just retelling the story to you guys. It's telling the sort of the qualia or the, the, the feels that I got out of the game that to me are going to carry me forward into whatever crazy project may come next. So that was our group dynamic. And just, man, as a group dynamic, it was the stuff of dreams. It, there was a lot of respect between the players and then a lot, a lot of also like bounce off going on. So, so bounce off is kind of like if I had imagined something one way, but then Kelsey kind of comes to the table with a different picture, then just kind of lean into it and go crazy with it. And we all were sort of playing that three-way respect of, oh, okay, okay, sure, it could be that way, and leaning into it with your turn and continuing and evolving and changing. And the other thing that, that I was really happy about, just as a sort of feel element, is that because of that underlying sort of chemistry, we were terribly effective as a tactical team. 
Like we really played just straight to our roles, really trusted the other members to play their roles and didn't overlap, didn't try to be the slayer, didn't try to be the MVP. Just let it form and work together as a team to overcome often what would be odds that we would get ourselves into because of aggression, which is, you know, any good RP team, right? I mean, <laughs> any good RPG group is going to be overly aggressive and get into bad situations. The GM's almost counting on it. And then how you work through that becomes what's interesting. And to me, we had a lot of interesting twists and turns of how we would be a tactical team and playing with my birthday boy groups in the background while we were playing in Alex's game gave me a really wild kind of high altitude perspective on comparing our little three-man team to each team that was coming into my altered state game each week and how the tactical capability would rise and fall and how chemistry directly translates into tactical capability. And that's a great segue into sort of the learnings that I took away from this, this big game. The first one I really want to reinforce with everybody is that player chemistry, it absolutely in every single case translate to tactic translates to tactical capability. Absolutely. It, it, it is the number one ma- thing that I think makes groups effective and combat powerful. Now, I know there's a lot more to any given game besides your tactical capability. But that said, nothing is going to give players more tactical power than chemistry, not any number of stats or even equipment or anything. It's all about how they work together is, is how you outthink rather than outmuscle encounters. And so as a game master, which is why we're here on the mainframe, right? What you can do is encourage and nurture and grow that chemistry. So if you ever see it happening, encourage it, nurture it, feed it, and, and tell it how great it is so that it tightens and grows and your group becomes more and more emotionally invested player to player, not necessarily character to character. That may follow. But if player to player you have real chemistry, their power to overcome more and more is going to be fantastic to behold as a game master. So the next one that I really learned that I think I underestimated is the sort of the fun and the interestingness of social entanglement in a game. And by social entanglement, I mean sort of like friends, um, you know, old indebted people that, you know, you owe, you know, or maybe someone that you want to protect or maybe someone that you care about, like a, you know, a family member. A lot of my games overlook this and I don't really do a lot of it. But I've noticed that Alex has been doing more and more of it, especially ever since our game that we did with uh, with Anaximon and Stubborn and all that. I think we we discovered some of the power of using social entanglement and how it can sort of drive some emotional stakes into the game. And that definitely was going on here. And you know what? On this podcast, though, I also have to put a word of warning on this. Sometimes if there's too much social entanglement, and your friends and loved ones are paying too high a price for your adventures. It can actually give you a sort of a hesitation or a not so great feeling. <laughs> and so be very careful with it. It might be more powerful than you as the game master may expect. And so in this particular game, we had a group of six or seven close friends and, and old buddies and acquaintances that got tangled up in our adventures in the worst, worst, worst ways. And at first it was like, ooh, the stakes are really high. But I have to admit as a player, it was a bit fatiguing to think that like my best friend character was only ever really going to be a victim 
in this story. I wanted him to just be a happy guy who I could crack a beer with when we were between adventures, but that kind of, that time never particularly came because Alex was really twisting the screws on these social entanglements. So A, it's very powerful. B, be very careful with that power. The next one, and this was proven out uh, in our final game the most, but Alex employed it throughout the campaign. And something that you guys know I'm a huge believer in and something that's reinforced in 5e hardcore mode is the environmental monster. Your, your best monster in any encounter, your most deadly, your most frightening, and your most theme illustrative is going to be your environment. So I've noticed that, especially just when you're talking index card RPG, something that that is swooping around or is, is an element in an encounter that requires a single save or take ultimate is one of the most deadly, most frightening, and most worked against elements in any encounter. And it's so dang simple, not only to write down, but to remember, you know, make a deck save or this swarm of nano insects will just shred you to the bone, right? By doing ultimate. Now, ultimate is just such a volatile dice. It can be one damage, which you don't even care. It's just a scratch, or it can be 12, which is where, it, I mean, it could shred you to the bone and drop you in one hit. And I, I think that this, this excitement of a non-destroyable, environmental threat that potent puts players into a role-playing mindset because they can't just chop it. They can't just shoot it. And I cannot reinforce enough that that environment and environmental monster is not only the way to up your challenge tick, which may feel exciting to you, but will force a role-playing mindset and a thinking outside the sort of parameters you've given mindset in players. And that is where magic happens. Now, another one, this is slightly unexpected for me too. Alex's GMing style really doesn't escalate the numbers at all. We're in the final campaign or final game session of a five month campaign and his bad guys are still shooting us with unmodified D8 gun damage. You would think to yourself, well, by then you guys have got a ton of loot, which we did. You've got a ton of new abilities, which we did. You should be able to, you know, withstand that kind of damage. No problem. No. When you get lots of armed opponents coming at you with D8 damage, even with a couple of hearts and some other abilities, some extra armor abilities, it's just too gnarly. And I think one of the cool things that Alex did was not escalate this stuff. In my games, I escalate it quite a bit. I'll have late game enemies with plus eight on all their rolls and maybe plus four on all their effort rolls. Like there's a huge escalation there. But Alex kept it pretty flat. And at times it seemed like maybe this isn't dangerous enough. And then at other times I'd be like, dude, do not mention to Alex that this is not dangerous enough because it felt really powerful, especially with some of those environmental hazards swooping around. And you really want to get this story concluded so you don't want to tempt fate. So flat numbers in index card RPG actually work over a relatively long-term game. And to me, that's, that's surprising and interesting. So something to chew on as a game master playing in index card RPG. And I would argue even in uh, other games like 5e, you can keep your numbers flatter than you might think and keep your challenge high if you have creative and dastardly encounters. All right, next up, <laughs> the noble savage is lost. This is the note that I have in my notebook. <laughs> Something funny about cyberpunk happens, which is you no longer get to play on this sort of noble savage um, archetype. 
Now, this is a, a somewhat outdated and maybe unfashionable term, but it, it basically means that, that there was a simpler time uh, in, in humankind and, and simpler people had this like very sort of honor bound behavior system and belief system. And this behavior and belief system is endlessly useful in tabletop gaming, right? It's, it's the fighter who has this vow, you know, it's the, it's the dwarf who refuses to, to back down, even though they know death is coming, you know, it's, it's the nobility of an old honor bound sort of feudal world. And how, when we play tabletop, it's really fun to go back to that place. That's a simpler, more powerful, more merit-based world, right? Rather than like, can you get a job and pay your rent? It's more like, are you loyal and courageous? And those are really fun questions to answer in an RPG. But in cyberpunk, you don't get to do that. <laughs> you don't, you're not only in a modern setting, you're in a postmodern setting. So your vernacular is very modern. The way you think and your motivations are very modern. And there's a lot less, to me, escapism in cyberpunk it feels a little bit like still being in the world. You're talking about machine guns. You're talking about katana. You're talking about cybernetics and problems with AI and computers. These are all high stress elements of our modern and hyper modern and postmodern worlds. So you don't get that joy of like, okay, let's walk to the next town. <laughs> You're not going to walk to the next village in cyberpunk. That's not happening. You're getting on a magnetic bike and riding at 200 miles an hour, zipping through wastelands of cities to get to the next village. And it's not even a village. It's just a district of another huge city, right? The point that I wanted to make here is that looking back at this campaign, I miss the noble savage. I, I miss that, that feudal world, that simpler world where you make vows and you walk on foot to go places and you have your four gold pieces and you have your best friend whose side you will stand by no matter what comes your way. And like this sort of life by the sword kind of simplicity and walking through the grass and the empty world, those fantasies are really hard to create and find in cyberpunk. And after so much cyberpunk play, I miss that. I miss that stuff. I miss the fantasy of thinking I'm that dwarf and all I have is my boots. <laughs> and as an extension of that, I think that cyberpunk also has something we experienced with Alex's game, which is the challenge of creating wonder in a postmodern or sci-fi world. Wonder is such a huge aspect of a session being exciting. Sometimes really the wonder and discovery of a session is more important than the survivability or the victory or the power of a session. It's that moment of realizing, whoa, X is actually Y. Now in a fantasy setting, wonder usually means the revelation of a distant past and how grandiose it was. But in cyberpunk, I think it can get quite difficult to induce a feeling of wonder. Think about the real world for a moment. It's very hard to get you to go, whoa, no way, right? As the world is revealed, because the modern world is so packed with sensory explosions and fascinating data and interesting side shoots and details and, and a blitz on the sense on the senses really. So how do you create a sense of wonder in a postmodern character? I think this is a real challenge. And Alex's answer to this challenge was to push our story arc to places I, he expected us to never imagine it would go. And I think, you know, especially when we wound up on the moon, <laughs> I think it's fair to say we didn't expect that. 
But the unexpected or the surprising isn't always the same as, as wonder or awe. And I do think it's hard to inspire awe in a postmodern character and a player inhabiting that character. And this challenge is something to take very seriously as you're considering your cyberpunk world. Because what you don't want to do is create that meat and potatoes cyberpunk where you're just doing another street run for another blob of cash so you can go blow it in the drug emporium. There's not a lot of wonder there. Now, maybe there's some fun combat there, but you're not going to get that feeling of awe and amazement. The next one, and again, this is an extension of this sort of modern syndrome, is the vernacular of cyberpunk. I found myself missing the sort of vernacular of the fantasy world, of the feudal world, which is a lot of language about courage, is a lot of language about truth and honor and duty. But in cyberpunk, the vernacular or the sort of the slang of each session is a lot more about computers, about looking out for your own, about like, you know, standing up for yourself, about sticking it to the man. Now, those themes are really cool, don't get me wrong, but just like the noble savage syndrome, I found myself missing talking in old fantasy tropes and vernacular, you know, even with like, you know, the classic Scottish dwarf accent or the classic like British elf accent, right? I found myself missing that. And so just be aware that going into an extended cyberpunk game, this could be something that your players could be feeling. Okay, now this one is a bit of a critique against Alex, which I already talked to him about. Um, but something that I really want to share with you guys, because you're here at the mainframe to think about being a good game master, right? And it is, do not underestimate the value of doing voices for your NPCs. Now, I know in a previous podcast, I talked about ways to avoid having to do voices for your NPCs. But after being a player in this game for so long, I can't overstate the value of going ahead and acting out the voices of your NPCs. So Alex would have a, a certain stylistic move that he would do while he was GMing. If he felt that an NPC was talking too much or like overstepping how cool we were as the heroes, he would kind of use this, um, this verbal tool of saying like, yada, yada. So he'd kind of say the first part of what the NPC is going to say. So here's an example. It would be something like, you know, you have no chance as street runners to attack a corporation the size of Arctech. Yada, yada. He kind of goes on like that, right? Instead of finishing this sort of legendary speech, you kind of, you don't really want to take up table time and you kind of just turn it into yada, yada. Or you say something like kind of a thing, right? We've all done this. But what's interesting is me as a player, I couldn't wait to hear what Alex was going to act out next. And, and this was the critique I gave him, not that he was skipping his NPC dialogue, but maybe he was underestimating our interest in hearing him act it out. It's like you're kind of hanging on the edge of your seat. And it's also fun, honestly, in a somewhat kind of cruel way to see your friend acting out of sort of a character and, and you know, daring that most dorky part of our of our hobby, which is acting out crazy NPCs with crazy voices and stuff, right? It is the dorkiest part. Let's just admit it. But I think just as a GM, don't underestimate how much your players love hearing you do that or struggle through it if you're not that great at it like me. They love it. And if you sort of brevify or you yada yada your way out of NPC dialogue, it can pull you out of the moment. And so be very careful with that and consider getting into that dorkiest of practices for a game master, which is doing zany voices. All right, now finally... I wanted to talk about movement. Alex had some very interesting sessions 
and I'm not sure if it was because of our actions or because of his prep or, or what, but sessions that emphasized us moving from map to map much, much more than any map being a challenge. We just move into a space, do a thing, talk to a guy, and we'd hop right through the other door and go to another map. Now, at first it would seem like, well, yeah, but don't you want to be challenged? Yeah, as a game master, I would think that too. But as a player, some of the sessions were so exciting just to go room to room, just to go space to space, to see the next thing, wiggle around a little bit, say some fun stuff, and see the next thing without challenge being a constant obstacle to seeing the next map. And this is something that for a player, this was a real revelation for me. And probably the single biggest takeaway from Alex's game is that sometimes just saying a a couple of lines, like I'm talking two rounds, you know, your players say some lines and characters are cool. You find out a little unexpected little uh, clue there. And then someone does some kind of brilliant role play thing that's kind of foobars the encounter rather than it being combat. And you just walk into the next map. You're like, Oh, look, look at this stuff in here. That simple, but so powerful from the player side. The GM is thinking, man, I'm barely doing anything. (laughs) They didn't even fight my cyborgs. They just told them they were the CEO and walked right past them. Uh, I hope they don't think that's lame. No, your players do not think it's lame. They are so excited to see that next room and to see that next space. And it doesn't always have to be hiding behind some kind of big legendary challenge. Now, you're going to want big legendary challenges, of course. But some of these sessions where Alex let us flow mainly because of our RP. We were RPing as a team to bypass combat encounters. And we just walked from space to space. And it was so exciting because it kind of gave you a clearer look at how the GM had perceived the sequence of events. You saw it in GM time, right? You know, like when you're prepping a game, it doesn't take you as many hours to prep a game as it does to play it usually, right? And so the GM sees this shorter, more condensed story arc that probably makes more sense and feels more uh, continuous than what the players might feel. And this moment when you're bypassing and cruising room to room, you feel that. You feel that condensed feeling that time is really passing, that you're actually moving through space. And it's super duper satisfying, I got to say. It was the hugest thing I learned from this four and a half months of playing cyberpunk. So I hope you guys appreciate my revelations and reminiscences and nostalgification of our altered state game, which Alex titled the garden of Eden. It was basically a sweeping story about a world to, or a, a plot to end the world and our ability to sort of stop it and not only stop it, but to attempt to survive it, which we didn't, but we sort of did. <laughs> the little sample from the intro was my personal highlight of the game, which was the death of my character case. For one thing, I never thought Case would die, and I never wanted him to die. I saw Case as one of the pivotal characters that created Altered State. It was how I manifested myself into our world as we were trying to make an innovative cyberpunk setting. And the moment that Case was, I mean, his death was also highly decisive. He was shredded by a gunship. So there was no... I think he was sent to like negative 39 or 49 or something. I mean, he was completely shredded. There wasn't even a body. And it was fair. It was right. It was the thing that needed to happen. It wasn't Alex being cruel. It wasn't an unfair or unpredictable room. It's what needed to happen. I was buying my closest ally and closest friend in the game a little bit of time. I knew it was the stakes 
And that's just how it played out when the dice happened. It was really a one-timer that got me more than anything else. And that timer could not be disputed. The dice had spoken. I had to stick with my plan. And to me, it was, it was a valuable death. It was an exciting death. And it was sad. I mean, it was downright sad that Case had been killed because he was a bit of a mascot of the game. And it's not every time that you get that real sadness about losing a character in a game or, or, the, or the total fairness, the sense of total transparency. And it was one of the best character deaths uh, that I've ever had. And it was a really a poignant and amazing moment. Uh, of role-playing as well as like how my teammates role-played it and and the whole thing and the way that it had played out because Kelsey wasn't feeling well one night and so it wound up just being me and JD and so that also made it even even more sad she kind of was unconscious her character was unconscious when this occurred and that put even another sort of sad note on it she couldn't be there to sort of say goodbye so to speak and so there was like some unresolved grief there and like stuff is like is real stuff and like i I think it was a tribute to our game for all four of us that that moment had such fun gravity to it and that the ending had a great deal of fun gravity to it too and uh so i just want to thank alex and joe and kelsey for such a great game it was a real hoot it's i'm glad it's over because it was kind of like getting to a point of craziness but also it's great to look back on and you know a little sad it's over too but on to the next game there's so many more worlds to explore, more heroics to perform, and uh, just learned a lot from this game. So I hope you guys learn as much as from my secondhand report as I did from being there. All right, this is old Hanker and Fernale. I'm going to get out of here for episode 59. Episode 60 is coming, which is still just mind-blowing to me that the Patreon and the podcast has made it this far. Um, so keep an eye out for episode 60 and going to keep those YouTube room designs coming. And my new table group is about to pull together, so there's just going to be plenty to dream about and to do and to talk about. And thank you, everybody. As I say every time on this podcast, thank you for your support here on Patreon, whether it's a buck or it's 12 bucks or for you crazy immortals who do even more thank you so much you pay my rent you're keeping me alive you're buying my groceries and that means i can keep the prices down and keep giving out as much free stuff as possible for everything that uh, spins out of my crazy rpg life and i hope as always it makes your rpg life just a little bit more better all right you guys keep it real out there do not steal And you're always going to get a deal, okay? I'll see you guys on the internet. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. And I'll talk to you soon as Hankering. I'm out.